This is a 980 CKNW podcast. This next segment about bladder health was a request from a patient. And I thought, yeah, it is kind of necessary because this woman who is in her late 50s had no idea that there were a number of treatment options for leakage of urine. So I want to go back a little bit and just start with leakage of urine is never normal. Okay, you may have seen those commercials on television where they're promoting pads and other products and they're not uh, the treatment. They may be a stopgap measure in the interim, but there are so many ways to um, eliminate leakage of urine. So some people leak with cough or sneeze or exercise. They start jumping on the trampoline after we've had babies and start leaking urine. That's pretty much... uh, Typically, it is stress urinary incontinence. It's not related to stress. It's actually a mid-urethral weakness. Um, And so there's lots of treatments for that. But also, somebody could have a neurogenic bladder and still leak small amounts of urine or have a nurse's bladder, for example, where somebody doesn't go to the bathroom for several hours in a day. So you should actually void every three to four hours or six to eight times in a 24-hour period. The bladder can hold about 400 to 600 cc's. So I did have a nurse practitioner once who came in and she said she felt she needed a pessary, and a pessary is one treatment option for leakage of urine. And, And the way she described it, she said when she's riding her mountain bike down the hill, boom, 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 she leaked, leaked, leaked along the way. And I thought, "Uh, it just doesn't sound like stress urinary incontinence. Did some further investigation, and there's lots of investigations that can be done or should be done uh, to get the proper diagnosis. And so what we realized was that she actually had a neurogenic bladder. And so she had distended her bladder repeatedly so often over the years that it was now not able to contract and empty effectively. Another type of urinary incontinence is urge urinary incontinence or overactive bladder where you get frequency, urgency, and nocturia, getting up at night to void. That's not normal either. In the postmenopausal woman, it's normal about once. The other shocking revelation here is that men leak urine too. And men, as many men, have overactive bladder, 16.6%, as women. So again, overactive bladder is frequency, urgency, and nocturia. There is something called key in the door syndrome. That means you've gotten to your front door, you've got all of your bags and from the groceries, and it might be raining out and you're, you know, fiddling with the key and thinking, I've got to get in and you leak on the way to the bathroom. So again, leaking urine is never normal. You want to drink an adequate amount of water-based fluids, enough so that your urine is clear 90% of the time. You typically want to drink that during the waking hours. There's lots of bladder irritants. Email me if you want me to send you my bladder irritants list, but pretty much it's spicy foods. Anything good is bad. So chocolate, spicy foods, citrus, um, bubbly drinks, uh, tonic, soda, that type of thing. Of course, alcohol. Tea is worse than coffee. You can have one cup of coffee a day. Uh, teas, the rooibos teas are brutal because they're not only bladder irritants, but they are diuretics as well. So lots of different treatment options. I mentioned one, the pessary. Um, You can try to do Kegel exercises. Where I find they work the best is for urgency incontinence. So if you get an overwhelming urge, you have to go to the bathroom. Instead of answering that call, stop what you're doing, remain calm, and squeeze your rectal muscle quickly 10 to 15 times. So do that with me right now. Squeeze, release, squeeze, release, squeeze, release, squeeze, release. Honestly, 100% of the time, it will calm your bladder down and it will give you an additional uh, time to hold your urine before you actually have to go again. So you want to increase the time between your voids. And because what happens, the other thing not don't do, and all of our mothers have taught us to do this, is preventive pee. So do not teach your children to go to the bathroom before they leave home. Don't 
go to the bathroom before you leave home and when you get to the office and before the meeting and because somebody is late, because that actually sends the incorrect message to your brain from your bladder. So every time your bladder fills up to, say, 50 cc. So, for example, if you get up in the morning and you void and you void four, you know, whatever, two, three hundred. 400 cc's. That's usually your largest void. And then an hour later, you're leaving your house and you think, I'm going to go to pee before I leave. Don't do it. You don't have to go. And so it sends, every time your bladder fills up to 50 cc's, it'll send a message to your brain that says, go to the bathroom. So no more preventive peeing. Treat your constipation. Um, you can ask me, you can email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com for any uh, particular uh, treatment options. Of course, there is the Kegel Throne that delivers 11,200 Kegel, device, Kegel exercises in 28 minutes. It's high fem technology, high intensity electromagnotherapy. Um, so that in combination with uh, other treatment options, it's good to have a nurse continence advisor assessment. We have them across the country. I happen to be the chair for the British Columbia group, um, but we have them in Ontario and Manitoba and Alberta. So find a nurse continence advisor, get an assessment and leak no more. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Okay, you wouldn't think that uh, the simple idea of decluttering would be good for your health. Full disclosure here, I am a declutterer from a long time ago. I think it's really important, and it's something that you constantly have to do. Uh, you know, it affects your emotions and your surroundings and, and I think clarity of mind as well. And, you know, is it important to you? Maybe it's not, but I want to talk you into it. I don't typically <laughs> like to talk dogs off meat wagons, but in this case I will. Um, I don't like to coerce anybody into anything, but um, I really think living simply... Uh, if possible, uh, living without all of the stuff, you know, buying all this needless stuff, asking yourself the question, do I need this? Do I actually have one of these at home? Uh, or, you know, think about it. Think about it overnight before you buy it. Put it on layaway, perhaps. Um, I I have full disclosure here. I feel decluttering is really important, and we can all have a tendency to uh, have too many wine glasses, too many dresses, too many pairs of shoes, uh, too many uh, uh, necklaces, too many pairs of earrings, whatever it is, too many sets of sheets, too many comforters, too many quilts. Um, you know, so, and you, there may not be enough space in your home or your places in your home to put all of these things. So I have actually uh, engaged the employment of a friend of mine who is a professional declutterer. And so she comes into my house probably three or four times a year and we go through the entire thing from stem to stern and absolutely everything is touched. And if it's not needed, I give it away. And, and some things that had sentimental value, again, I said, I wear my heart on my sleeves. sleeve. I'm an emotional person. I feel your feelings. I feel your pain. And so I would have difficulty because they had sentimental value. But then I read Marie Kondo's or I watched her Netflix um, and read her little book. And she gave a great tip, which was thank the item for its service and send it on its way. And so I just thought that was brilliant. And so I do that. And then the other tip that my declutterer 
friend did for me. She said to me, and, and I do a lot of speaking engagements. I, um, you know, I have, I have a consulting company and so I'm, you know, have a lot of meetings and this kind of thing. And I have to, or this was my excuse anyway, I need new clothes <laughs> for all of that, especially the presentations. And she said to me, the next time you do a presentation and you want to go shopping, go shopping in your own closet. I was like, uh, knife to the heart. Um, but she was absolutely correct. And so for several presentations that I've delivered in the last little while, don't tell anybody, I've actually worn dresses that I've worn once before. If you can believe that, I mean, shame on me, but it actually feels pretty good. And you know, what I do instead is I might buy a pair of shoes or I might buy a new necklace. And so I'm not buying the whole shooting match. And in the meantime, I'm saving money. And so it's fantastic. So she did recently about three or four months ago, she did the whole place and I've managed to hang up every dress after I've taken it off <laughs> and kept everything in order. And now I'm like, I still have extra. I'm going to bring her back in. So it's really important to understand about the importance of decluttering in your life, why it's important to you. I've just shared with you and, you know, um, I'm not, I don't typically like to share too much about myself, my life, my weaknesses, my drawbacks. Um, but you know, that is certainly one of them, a bit of a clothes horse. Um, so there, it's not easy to do, but your life will be a whole lot simpler. It'll be easier to clean your house. It will be easier to find things. It will be easier for you to pay your bills. Physical clutter is only one type of clutter, the visible and physical stuff around you. But your brain, however, parks each and everything in your physical world somewhere inside your memory. And when it does so, it creates a kind of psychic baggage when it's not clarified. Why is that clutter there and what do you need to do with it? And so another idea that I've had is I, on the upstairs, I've kept um, hefty trash can liners. And so anything that was stained or ripped or not worn or un. un- or ugly, quite frankly, went in the bag. Um, so there's lots of little tips and uh, lots of little ways. And something, if, it's, if, you're, if you're finding it difficult to get going, procrastinating, a great book that I recommend is one called Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. And this book is by James clear. And it's about tiny changes producing remarkable results. So it's important that you declutter, I think, if you want to, if you want to have your life um, a little bit more simple and if you want to be able to find the keys, your wallet. But uh, there's a couple of three little tips that I want to give you. I'm all about threes, okay? Um, determine where important things go. That was a sexpert joke, okay? Number one, determine where important things go. So where do the keys go? Where does the mail go? Open the mail every day, rip that envelope and toss it away, or go better yet, go on electronic um, bills. Where does your wallet go? Where does your passport go? Where do your legal documents go? Put your groceries into the refrigerator immediately. You might even draw a map of your home and workspaces to label where these important items live. Organize your drawers. Just take your kitchen drawers because they're all just junk drawers anyway. I've certainly done this and just looked at it, uh, maybe taking one or two things out, toss the rest of it. Um, So you can do that and then organize those drawers. Simple is best. Then take a few minutes every day to put those important things where they belong. This can be when you arrive home after work. Um, For example, take a few minutes to do that. And then for everything that is left, let's call it backlog, take another five minutes. 
to process a few items that are laying around. That's it. You'll be surprised after a few weeks how much more organized your house is and how much nicer it is for you to live there. You might even like your house better and not put it on the market. Anyway, people always say that. They get their house ready for sale and um, and it looks so much better. But you can live that way today. Coming up next, I'm going to be talking to a forensic nurse and we're going to be talking about um, how to prevent sexual assault and what happens during uh, a forensic exam. I'm Maureen McGrath and this is the Sunday Night Health Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath, uh, I just want to finish up on the decluttering segment. Um, a number of you have emailed me for the name of my declutterer. Well, I'll have to speak to her first to make sure she doesn't uh, disclose any of the family secrets. <laughs> Number one. Um, and yes, I will certainly uh, send you that information. Uh, also, um, uh, Sarah from St. Albert called in recommending another book, What Your Clutter is Trying to Tell You by Carrie Richardson. So I think I've heard of that book, but I'm not... Uh, 100% familiar with it, but anyway, great resource, and thank you, Sarah, for calling in. Um, there are 460,000 sexual assaults in Canada every year. Out of every 1,000 sexual assaults, 33 are reported to the police, 29 are recorded as a crime, 12 have charges laid, 6 are prosecuted, 3 lead to convictions, and 997 assailants walk free. I'm joined on the line by Hannah Varto. She's a nurse practitioner with expertise in women's health and forensics who provides medical care to victims of violence. She's also a legal nurse consultant with objective connections. Thank you for joining me on the line, Hannah. Thanks very much, Maureen. I'm happy to be here. It's a very tough subject. Um, And with numbers like that, of people who have been sexually assaulted, um, what are some of the things to do if you've been sexually assaulted or you think you've been drugged and sexually assaulted? The first thing is find some support. Find somebody you trust and make sure that you're safe. By far, we always want to make sure that women are safe before we start thinking about legal issues or healthcare issues. Please make sure you're safe. Find a supportive friend, family member, Uh, or if all else fails, call a crisis line. I work with a hospital program for many years, and we see a lot of women who come in right after a sexual assault, um, and they're in crisis, and and that's okay, and we understand that. And what is it, how are women dealt with it? It's tremendous work that that you do. I, I must commend you on this particular work. And I know you're also on call. And some of the other nurses that you work with, uh, there's a team of you that are on call for this work um, because these sexual assaults can happen anytime, day or night, when you least expect it. And the age span is uh, quite young to quite old. Yes, absolutely. And it really depends on the program, um, what each hospital offers. So in British Columbia, we're very lucky to have a number of different programs, but they all operate a little bit differently. In general, though, when a woman presents to the hospital, um, often to the emergency department, and says that she's been sexually assaulted or raped or even hurt by a partner, um, typically the nurse is paged within um, about an hour the nurse will arrive to the, the hospital so patients aren't left waiting for eight hours just to, to see a, a forensic nurse or to have a forensic medical exam but the priority always is medical care first so the triage nurse will make sure that the woman is uh, both safe 
but also cared for medically. If she's bleeding, if she has any injuries that need to be taken care of, those are always the priority at all of the hospital-based programs and even community-based programs uh, that I've worked with or been in touch with with my colleagues. So yes, nurses are on call 24-7. Sometimes it's teams, sometimes physicians and nurse practitioners like myself are involved as well. It really depends on the community and the hospital uh, program. Once a, can I explain once a, what, what happens at the hospital, or do you I, want to have another I, question there, Marie? I'd like you to do that, but I have a question first. Um, sure. So would you recommend if a, if a woman felt that she had been drugged or suspected that she has been drugged and potentially sexually assaulted, would you suggest that she go to the emergency department? Yes, if she feels she's ready for that. Uh, we do understand that in these situations it can be very confusing, Um, Sometimes we don't entirely know exactly what's happened to our bodies. Uh, Often women will have a sense that something's happened. Uh, If she can get to a hospital, that's great. Uh, If not, at the very least, if we're thinking about forensic care, if she can collect her first pee, that's golden. (laughs) Most drugs, if women think that they've been drugged um, unknowingly or had something slipped into a drink and they wake up, um, most of those drugs are metabolized or processed through our kidneys, which then creates the urine, and they come out in the urine. Unfortunately, it comes out very fast. We have awesome kidneys, and these drugs are excreted really quickly. And so often by the time we're able to see them in the hospital environment, they may have peed two, three, four times, and unfortunately many of those drugs are gone. So if we're really thinking forensically, it'd be great if she can collect that first pee, but that's not really the reality of human beings. Right, but that's excellent advice. I didn't actually realize that myself. That's outstanding advice. So what are some of the other things that happen in a forensic medical exam for a woman who has been sexually assaulted? I want to emphasize, first of all, that everything that happens is by choice. The forensic nurse examiners are not there to pressure a woman or to recreate an assault by any means. And so everything is done by choice. Always medical care is first. And that's basically an offer of a head-to-toe medical exam. Are you okay? Do you have injuries? Um, If they want a genital exam to make sure that the genitals or the anus are healthy and normal and there's no injuries, the nurse will offer that. The nurse also offers a forensic exam at the same time. And when I say the word forensic, what I mean is legal. So there's the healthcare piece, making sure you're healthy and well, but then there's the legal piece. And the legal exam is about looking for things that might be used as potential evidence. For example, a bruise or um, a scrape or maybe a fiber or maybe the perpetrator ejaculated on her stomach. She might collect a swab uh, for DNA or for sperm. And so all that head-to-toe happens two exams at the same time is a medical and a forensic exam. But that's also by the patient's choice. The patient says, no, stop, I don't want to go any further, or no, stop, don't look at my genitals. The nurse will never push that. Absolutely. Now, I don't know if you saw this, but in her forthcoming book, um, E. Jean Carroll um, wrote that in, in the book called What Do We Need Men For? A Modest Proposal. She wrote that Trump allegedly sexually assaulted her in the dressing room of a Bergdorf Goodman department store. She also said that she hung up the dress in her closet that she was wearing. She hung it up and she's left it there for however many years, a number of years, 20 years or so. Um, is that something that you recommend women to do is to, you know, in, in the probably the most famous dress that was saved was Monica Lewinsky's dress, but do you suggest that they save their clothing or is that something that you collect? 
I don't think it's ever a problem to save something that a woman thinks might be used as evidence. My advice is that if she's going to save something, underwear is often the best evidence. Um, Or if the perpetrator has ejaculated on a towel or on her clothing, or she thinks that there might be something on her clothing, absolutely to collect it. If somebody's going to collect their own clothing, um, we recommend they store it in paper bags rather than plastic, because plastic, because of the moisture, it doesn't allow the the, um, fluids to breathe and to dry properly, and it can end up molding, which degrades DNA. And so paper bags, and preferably each item in a separate paper bag, so there's no uh, risk of cross-contamination or an argument where, oh, the underwear touched the dress, and therefore the semen was actually on the underwear that then touched the dress. So we can sort of separate them. We will collect the clothing um, at the hospital as well if a woman does present for that, and we have very strict, specific procedures around how we do that, of course. That's, that's also great advice. Now, something else that E. Jean Carroll stated in her interview, I think it was on CNN, about her book and these allegations against Trump was that even though there was no statute of limitations in the state of New York, she felt that it would be just, quote unquote, just disrespectful for her to make sexual assault about herself when it happens to women around the world. She actually made it seem like her rape wasn't as bad as somebody else's rape. Is that a I actually felt it was incredibly disrespectful disrespectful to the, to every woman who has been raped and to all women who, because we're all at risk for that, um, you know, incredibly disrespectful not to file uh, claims against him, not to file charges. Um, but are there different degrees of rape or is rape, rape is rape? I think rape, rape is rape. Um, <laughs> anyone who violates someone else's body for a sexual purpose, that's the definition. The definition doesn't have to be severe violence and bleeding and and penetration and whatnot. Um, and I think that most women have experienced some form of sexual harassment or sexual assault. Um, and we just decide how serious and whether it's worth moving that forward. I want to emphasize, Maureen, though, that, you know, it's not a victim's job to prevent this from happening to other people. And although some people who are very supportive, maybe even nurses or police officers or supportive family and friends will say, oh, you have to report, you have to tell someone because, you know, you don't want this happening to someone else. We have to remember that that's a way of guilting a victim into doing something that they may not be ready for. They may not be ready to talk to police. They may not be ready to undergo a medical exam or a forensic exam. And we need to come around these these women and support them. It's all of the other people's job, all of our, our job to prevent sexual assault and speak out about it. Let's let the victim decide what's best for them. It's not their job to prevent this crime from other people while they're going through their own crisis. No, and I didn't actually mean that it was theirs, but to, to actually she, I think she underestimated the impact on her life. She also said that she felt it was her fault. And I want to make that point. It's never a woman's fault who uh, has been raped. Hannah Vardo, thank you so much. We'll get you back to talk about your legal nurse consultant with Objective Connections next time. Appreciate your help out on this subject. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, Tune in Amazon Alexa HD radio at 101.1 FM HD2 and on the AM dial 980 CKNW.